0: This week on Viewpoints.
1: We educate workers, and it's interesting to see their reactions when they know that whatever the case may be, that they actually have rights in this country.
0: The fight for labor rights. Then.
2: Don't tie allowance to chores. It's important to give them that responsibility so they feel like they're doing their chores as being part of the family, a team player, and not just getting money for it.
3: The importance of instilling money lessons early on. I'm Marty Peterson.
0: And I'm Gary Price. These stories in depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints.
4: I struggled with symptoms like frequent gas and stomach pain for years.
3: I was bloated all the time with daily diarrhea.
4: At first, I thought it was what I was eating.
3: I kept thinking it was stomach issues.
4: So I did my research and talked to my doctor and we finally uncovered the truth.
3: It was actually EPI. Exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, or EPI, is a condition where your pancreas is unable to help break down your food.
4: It can lead to symptoms like diarrhea, gas, bloating, stomach pain, unexplained weight loss, and oily stools.
3: And EPI symptoms can be confused with those of other common digestive conditions, like irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's, and celiac disease.
4: So getting to the right diagnosis meant being more open with my doctor about the severity of my symptoms and how often they were happening.
3: But there's good news. EPI is manageable. So don't wait any longer. Use the symptom checker at identifyepi.com and schedule a visit or call with your doctor to ask, Could I "I have EPI?" EPI?
4: Sponsored
5: by AbbVie.
0: Imagine showing up to a job each day, completing your tasks, and then, after months of work, never seeing a dime for your time and efforts. What would you do? Who would you call? Each year, hundreds of thousands of people find themselves in this exact scenario. It happens across every industry, but runs rampant in low-wage, labor-driven sectors such as retail, restaurants, agriculture, and manufacturing, where there's typically a large population of minority and immigrant workers. When this happens in Chicago, Laura Garza is on call, ready to help. Garza is the Worker Center Director at Arise Chicago an organization that empowers people by helping them to understand their rights and fight injustice in the workplace. This organization began in 2002 and over the years has worked with thousands of employees to help recover more than $8.3 million in owed wages and compensation. Garza highlights one case in particular that occurred during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic last year.
1: It's basically a group of 14 workers. They were hired by three individuals to work out of a basement to make masks during COVID. And these workers collectively are owed over $98,000. And so they came to us and we met with these workers, did Know Your Rights trainings. That's the first step that we do. And then asked the workers what they wanted to do in terms of next steps and so we recently just did a delegation to one of these employers other business that this individual has to demand they get paid and ironically here are these essential workers making masks and you know we're suspicious about some of the funding that was coming to these three individuals and anyways these workers decided that they needed to take action and they collectively did that out of the 14 workers some of them showed up and we marched into this employer's business and demanded they get paid.
0: As of late June, the case is still ongoing. Despite confronting the employer, the 14 workers still haven't been paid what they're owed and are now actively pursuing possible litigation for wages withheld. While it may seem surprising that a business can avoid paying close to $100,000 in wages, Garza says it happens time and time again. In these situations, worker centers provide direction and resources to laborers needing assistance, but are not a one-stop solution to people's problems.
1: Some of the misconception that comes from workers is they think that by coming to us, we're going to, you know, write that letter and demand they get paid, and they don't realize that we're going to be pushing for them to be involved. And just the whole leadership development that we do with workers, I think that to some workers that's like, wow, like there's a lot more than just calling the worker center to resolve their issues. They actually have to be involved. They actually have to recruit other workers to come to our meeting. They have to be willing to take direct action in cases that we're taking. I think that they come with a conception that we're going to solve their issues. And it's really them stepping up and taking, just empowering themselves to take action and demand what it's all to them. And we're not in the business of helping workers. We're in the business of supporting, educating, building confidence among workers, building a commitment to solidarity.
0: It can be a fearful and nerve-wracking process for workers to stand up together and directly confront employers about wages, health and safety concerns, or ill-treatment. But this method of resolution is often the best avenue, unless the issue is escalated to legal or governmental systems, which can sometimes take months or even years to resolve.
1: We try to do direct action, assuming that's what the workers want to do. We try to avoid litigation if we can or going to government agencies, although they've been obviously both routes have been helpful, but they just are lengthy. And so the best route for us and we're, you know, one of the things that we stress with workers is if they're willing to take that step to do a delegation and confront the boss, which most of them, they get there.
0: You may be wondering, where are the unions in these situations? The reality is that many domestic laborers are not unionized and don't have a formal representative that will step in and act on their behalf.
4: Unions typically represent particular types of workers, like auto workers or mine workers or flight attendants or
0: teachers. That's Dr. Celeste Monforton, a lecturer in the Department of Health and Human Performance at Texas State University and the co-author of the new book, On the Job. The Untold Story of Worker Centers and the New Fight for Wages, Dignity, and Health. Monforton says that unions and worker centers both function in similar ways, but unions are much larger entities that are heavily structured and work directly with employers to create a formal collective bargaining agreement. This includes negotiated wage contracts, sick leave, benefits, and more, all formalized in writing and agreed upon before the work begins. If
4: we think about the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, there's an international kind of at the top of the family tree, and they'll have a large executive board. They'll have a health and benefits and pensions department. They'll have policy. And then on the ground are all the local unions whose members will negotiate their employment conditions with a particular employer or a group of employers. And the members will pay dues to the union. And I would just close by saying that unions deserve all the credit for the labor protections and standards that are the law in our country and that we come to expect in a civil society like prohibitions on child labor, overtime pay, safety protections, job security, and that is the important role that unions have played here in the U.S., but also around the globe.
0: On the other hand, Montfortin says that a worker center is more of a community-based organization, typically made up of a small staff that shifts their resources depending on what the local area needs. They act more in a responsive capacity to resolve worker issues, and can also extend into a variety of other roles, from career development skills training to helping people resolve housing issues. Some of them
4: offer language classes, English classes, maybe computer classes. Some of the worker centers we visited provide some healthcare services, definitely some legal assistance, whether it's on tenants' rights or discrimination. But of course, a lot of the focus is on working conditions. So, worker centers have been very successful, both in assisting an individual worker or an individual or small group of workers, you know, to get paid, but also very, instrumental in changing laws so that there are more consequences for employers who would engage in that injustice.
0: Monforton points out that many worker centers are instrumental drivers in creating or tightening county and state laws that protect low-wage laborers. In addition, there are some larger networks of worker centers that have created a regional or national alliance.
4: they all exchange tactics and strategies or share information about the problems that workers and their particular worker centers are experiencing and maybe another worker center had that same issue and they share the information about the approach it's a way to build a larger community of individuals who have a shared experience Shared in the sense of that they are immigrants. Shared in the sense that they don't speak English. Shared in the sense that they have experienced some abuse or injustice on
0: the job. You may not have heard of worker centers before this segment, but they've been acting behind the scenes for decades, operating out of office spaces or community centers in both large cities and small towns. The end goal of these organizations is to advocate for minorities, immigrants, and low-wage workers who often fall through the cracks. Through education and awareness, the aim is to keep building a network of members that are stronger together than alone. And in order to keep this community resource afloat, each member contributes through monthly dues. Montfortin says the cost per person varies from center to center.
4: So some worker centers, for example, in Greaton, California, the Great Worker Center, they charge $5 a month for individuals to be members. Other worker centers, for example, in Massachusetts, the Immigrant Worker Center affiliated with Mascosh, they don't have a membership fee. What they require is that If a worker comes needing assistance, perhaps they were injured on the job, and so they need help finding an attorney to maneuver through the workers' compensation system, the Immigrant Worker Center will match that worker up with an attorney who will assist them. And in exchange, the workers are required to attend training class about labor rights, about OSHA, and will have to participate in at least three activities, and that might be supporting another worker that has to go to before a judge on a workers' compensation case. Or it may be attending a rally at the state capitol about a requirement for sick leave.
0: These centers try to keep the cycle going by having people who have been helped return the favor to others. Garza at Arise Chicago says that locals often find out about the workers center through word of mouth or through social media.
1: Social media has played a huge role, and workers contacting us, Arise is pretty savvy around using Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp. A lot of workers actually find us through WhatsApp, uh, find our organizers through WhatsApp, and use WhatsApp as a uh, organizing tool amongst themselves. That's another way that they actually contact us.
0: If you're a worker who needs help, or you're interested in volunteering your time at a local worker center, simply search online for the closest center near you. To find out more about this topic and our guests, Laura Garza and Dr. Celeste Montfortin, visit viewpointsradio.org. This segment was written and produced by Amira Zaveri. I'm Gary Price.
3: Coming up, are you taking steps to make sure your child is financially savvy? When Viewpoints returns.
5: Oregon's Tillamook County Creamery Association produces dairy products you know and love. In fact, the farmer-owned co-op makes award-winning cheese and is now the fastest-growing family-size ice cream brand in the country. Its commitment to stewardship informs every decision the co-op makes, and it's getting noticed. The company was recognized by Fast Company as a World Changing Ideas Award Honorable Mention recipient. And in 2020, Tillamook achieved status as a certified B Corporation. There are plenty more good stewardship examples in their newly released Good is Something We Make Together stewardship report. Here's Paul Snyder, Executive Vice President of Stewardship at Tillamook County Creamery Association.
0: When COVID hit, our farmer owners stepped up with a $4 million relief fund to help support employees, nonprofits, and local businesses in the communities where we operate. And we have donated 10% of September profits to the Alpha Farmer Initiative to protect at-risk farmland and provide grants to up-and-coming farmers all over the country. We've also reduced water use, made advances in cow care, and joined the global fight against food waste.
5: The Tillamook County Creamery Association is owned by around 80 Oregon farming families and has been around for 112 years. Find out how they're a force for good in the world at tillamook.com stewardship. I worry about lots of things. My finances, my grandkids.
6: If you're 65 or older, you have enough things to worry about. Pneumococcal pneumonia shouldn't be one of them. Even healthy adults 65 and older are at increased risk for this potentially serious bacterial lung disease that can disrupt your life for weeks. Help protect yourself with the Prevnar 13 pneumococcal 13-valent conjugate vaccine, diphtheria CRM197 protein. Prevnar 13 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 13 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 13 does not protect against all strains of the disease. Don't get Prevnar 13 if you have had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with a weakened immune system may have a lower response to the vaccine. The most commonly reported side effect was pain at the injection site. For additional common side effects and full prescribing information, please call 1-866-694-9300 or visit Prevnar13.com. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about Prevnar 13.
3: For generations, Americans have chased the American dream. And once you're a parent, you want your child to live the American dream. You want your kids to go to a nice school, get a good job, buy a new house, even get to see trendy shows on Broadway if that's what they want. And so, from the day your kids are born, you may begin to wonder what you can do to set your child up for financial success. According to Beth Kobliner, a financial expert and author of the book, Make Your Kid a Money Genius, Even If You're Not, the answer is to start young, like really
2: young. Research shows that by age three, kids really understand the money basics. They understand that when you give money for something, you get something back. They understand exchange. understand value. And it's really important to start talking to kids at very young ages, three, four, five, about want versus need. We want chocolate milk, but we need milk. So when we go to the store, we're going to buy mostly things we need. And sometimes we're also going to buy things we want. And making that distinction at a young age is a great way to get started.
3: Kobliner stresses that teaching your children about money is a process and that each child is different, but that there are some common guidelines she encourages all parents to follow.
2: Generally speaking, it's smart to, first of all, talk to girls as much as you talk to boys because research shows that parents seem to be less likely to talk to daughters about investing topics, for example, than they are to talk to sons. So just knowing that, I think, is really important. You also want to not lie about how much money you have on you. If you're with your kids and they say, can we buy this? You're like, no, I don't have money. And then you turn around and buy a coffee with your credit card or your debit card. They see that and they know and, and you're busted. It's better to be honest and say, nope, we're not buying that right now. That's something we'd love to have, but we don't have, we don't have the money. We're not going to pay for it right now. That's not on our priority list right now. And explaining to kids rather than buying, I think, is really important.
3: Once a child understands value and the distinction between wants and needs, Gobliner says you can begin to teach them how to prioritize.
2: It's great to set a goal. And it's great to say, okay, this is the Pokemon you want or the sneakers you want, whatever it is, whether you give your kid allowance or they get a lot of money from grandparents, whatever it is, you want to have them save that money and talk about what they call opportunity cost. You don't have to use that term, but it's that basically if we're going to spend our money on snacks after school then we're not going to be able to put that dollar into that jar that you're using to save up for that Pokemon. So starting to have concrete goals and save up money in a very understandable way is great.
3: And Kobliner says the opportunities to make your child feel a part of their own financial future continue to pile up as they get older.
2: When a kid turns 8 or 9 and maybe they have $50 or so, Opening a bank savings account, making sure it's a bank that doesn't charge fees for very low balances is very smart because it's a real way to concretize the idea, okay, I'm kind of really taking this seriously now and I'm saving in a place that will keep my money safe. When a kid gets a little older, you could help him transfer it to an online bank. So they'll probably get, you know, one percent interest, a little bit more than you get in a regular bank. But just the experience of opening a bank account, I think, is really pivotal and key for kids, something that my generation, most people fondly remember opening that first bank savings account, and that just doesn't happen as much anymore.
3: An important factor in the whole discussion, though, is how your child receives money. Do they get monthly spending money? Do they just get gifts around holidays and their birthdays? Or maybe you make them earn their own money. Kobliner says these tactics all have benefits and drawbacks, but ultimately it comes down to the lessons they're taught about handling that money.
2: I looked at more than two dozen research studies on this and found that giving kids allowance is not the financial holy grail. You don't have to give kids allowance. I think parents get a little stuck on that. and They're like, oh, we started it and then we forgot. and The kids forgot to ask us about it. But the important thing is Whatever you're giving, however your kid gets money, whether it's through grandparents or you give them from time to time, be clear on what you expect them to spend money on. So if you get them a pair of sneakers, but they want those designer sneakers, you're like, okay, that's on you. You'll have to save up for that. So be clear about what they're supposed to spend their money and be consistent. Don't go back on that when you feel kind of bad for them a few months later and, oh, they really want the sneakers. So be clear, be consistent.
3: There are some money-providing habits Kobliner says parents should avoid.
2: Don't tie allowance to chores. It's good to give kids chores, but research has shown that it's important to give them that responsibility so they feel like they're doing their chores as being part of a family, a team player, and not just getting money for it. So that feeling of being a team player and working responsibly to be a member of the family is one predictor of how likely someone is to go on to graduate from college, or get a job even. So keeping chores separate from allowance is really critical.
3: Another money-providing habit Kobliner warns parents about is co-signing on a credit card for a high school or college-age child.
2: Parents sometimes think, well, they're young. I'm going to give them what they call an authorized credit card and let them use my credit card. Some parents, first of all, think they're helping their kids build up credit, and that may not be the case. But depending upon what kind of card it is. But also, if the kid makes a mistake, that impact on your credit score, and I've met many people along my book tour. I've been going to different cities and hearing stories of horror stories, really, of parents who said, oh, I gave my kids, my grown kid, my credit card, co-signed it, and now I'm really facing my own financial problems and my credit score is damaged because of it. So, I think talking about credit cards, even middle schoolers or elementary school kids, when you use this, this is like borrowing money. Now, when you borrow money, you have to pay it back with interest. So buying something like an iPad for $600, if you can't pay it all back, it might end up costing you, you know, close to $1,000 when you add in the interest and really making that a concrete point.
3: Kobliner recommends parents find a way to provide their college students with some spending money without securing them a credit card.
2: It's fine to say, okay. We're going to give you whatever it is. Is it $500 a semester, $200 a semester, whatever you feel is appropriate, and that's it. That's your money, and you give it to them. You can give it to them on a debit card because that will allow them, and it's a limited debit card, it's a prepaid debit card, and you can get some with lower fees or it can be a debit card attached to your account, but it should only have the specific amount of money in it and no overdraft protection or no way to tap into more money. And when it runs out, it runs out.
3: Teaching your child how to be money-savvy can be a challenging chore at times, but implanting these skills early on can make all the difference as life becomes more complicated and the financial choices they make become more important. To find out more about Beth Copliner and this topic, Check out her book, Make Your Kid a Money Genius, Even If You're Not, available online and in bookstores. You can also find links and additional resources at viewpointsradio.org. This segment originally aired in March 2019 and was written by Evan Rook. Studio production by Jason Dickey. I'm Marty Peterson.
0: Viewpoints returns in just a moment.
6: Cardiovascular or CV disease is the number one killer of adults in the U.S., and millions of people trying to reduce their risk of a heart attack or stroke may unknowingly be taking medications that are not proven, nor FDA approved to reduce cardiovascular risk. Let's hear from cardiologist Dr. John Osborne. Many people are unaware that after a failed outcome study, the FDA revoked the approval of phenofibrates when added to statins,
0: as the risk outweighed the benefits to heart health. It's important to remember that statins, along with diet and exercise, can lower cardiovascular risk by about 25 to 35 percent, but persistent cardiovascular risk, which can lead to a life-threatening event, may remain. I would tell anyone still being prescribed phenofibrates, such as Tricor and trilipics, with a statin to talk to their doctor about FDA-approved therapies for cardiovascular risk reduction.
6: To learn more and get clear on the facts, visit It'sClearToMeNow.com again. That's It'sClearToMeNow.com.
7: Welcome to Culture Crash, where we examine what's new and old in entertainment. As someone who was locked inside during the pandemic last year, and who has a Hulu subscription, I had seen the banners for the TV show Dave countless times. A guy is popping out of a giant pair of underwear, giving the audience a thumbs up. I rolled my eyes and passed by, pretty confident I'd never be interested in that show. However, a friend's recommendation got me to change my tune, and I jumped in. The show is a fictionalized version of the life of rapper Lil Dicky, whose real name is, you guessed it, Dave. Yes, it is crude and crass, but it's also pretty hilarious. In addition to plenty of outrageous comedy bits, though, The show takes a good look at fame and the music business in the social media era. What's more valuable in today's digital economy? A viral video or a hit single? It's honestly a pretty fascinating question. The show also tackles the strain that fame can have on a relationship and even mental health issues. Again, though, I do want to stress that there is also just a lot of crude humor But if you like that kind of thing, I have a feeling you'll like Dave. It's funny, occasionally heartfelt, and it features a slew of fun celebrity cameos. Dave Season 1 is now streaming on Hulu, and new episodes air on FXX every Wednesday and are made available on Hulu on Thursdays. I'm Evan Rook.
5: Bodega, bodega, bodega. Alpha and Omega. <clears throat> Siamese sailors sell celery sandwiches. A wing about a serving platter. Hey, Jamie. Yes. Uh, did uh, Did you want to try reading that line on the script there? Oh, yeah. Let's see. Uh, you could say big when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive. That one. Yes. Yeah. No. I'm just not warmed up yet. Shouldn't be long. La la la! Detector test. Indecent
6: bundle out- your out- home and auto, auto with warmed Progressive, in progressive in
5: today. The Marmot Mangled by Mushy Pork
6: Pancake. Progressive Marmot Casualty Marmot Insurance Marmot. Company and affiliates.